Well, if you're new with us today, um, I'm excited that you're here. My name's Dylan. I'm one of the pastors. Um, if you're watching online, which I know is going to be a lot of y'all this weekend, uh, maybe if you're a state fan, you're watching online because our season is done. I mean, it just it just is, um, or that's right. So I understand the mourning and that sort of thing. Uh, maybe if you're a Braves fan, Dodgers fan, lots of sadness in the sports world. At least for me, um, this weekend, maybe that's not you. But anyway, uh, but I'm Dylan. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm excited that you're here. We're in the final weekend of a series. Uh, called fairy tale faith, where we've been looking at things that, that we often kind of think about Christianity, um, but but things that maybe aren't exactly true. And so we've been looking at what Christianity actually is, and I'm super super excited uh, to walk through today's message because we're going to be dealing with with maybe one of the most asked questions in the church, and it really is, um, well, how do I know that Christianity is even real? But also, how do I even know if I'm actually saved? And that sort of thing. So I'm looking forward to getting into that. If you have a Bible and you want to follow along, we will primarily be in 1 John today, uh, mostly chapter 5. It will kind of take a while to get there. We'll be some other places. Um, But if you don't want to be there, uh, if you don't don't have a Bible, you can just follow along on the screen, and that will be good. Um, How many of y'all have ever pretended to know something that, that you didn't actually know? We've been there, right? Or maybe even better, maybe we can be more honest about this. How many of y'all have ever seen somebody pretend to know something that you knew they didn't know? You knew they were just kind of, kind of, you know, just talking the way through it. So here's how that happened for me. Um, it was my sophomore year in college. Um, I was at a small school called Southern Wesleyan for my first couple years anyway. And my buddy Daniel was down there as well. And we were in an English class together. And I knew my buddy, like, like, like he, he, did, he didn't do the reading for like, for like literature. Like he just didn't. And I like barely did it, honestly. Honestly, I kind of suffered through it. It was really kind of boring in my opinion. Um, but when you know it, what, he, what he would do, he had a strategy. He would read like the first paragraph. And then he was like, well, okay, if I get called on, I can just kind of, you know, just talk my way through it. And so lo and behold, he gets called on by, my, by our teacher that morning. And he just starts going on. And it sounds, he, he has a, the gift of just being able to make stuff up on the spot. And he's just going on and on and on. And I'm like, he's, he's just full of baloney. Because I know he didn't do the reading. And wouldn't you know it, guys, the teacher's like, that's exactly what I would have said if I'd been asked that question. And I'm like, you dog. Like, you didn't even do the reading. And, and, and I was just kind of, I was amazed at his ability to just baffle people with his words and that sort of thing. But I knew he hadn't done the reading. And so we joke about that to this day. Um, so we've seen people, like, pretend they knew something that they didn't know. It's a little more difficult to admit that we've done this, right? And, and so my experience with that, um, I was uh, basically interviewing to, to do some work on this guy's property, which involved mowing uh, the fields that his horses were we're in, which involved me using a tractor that was a stick shift. Now, I've never driven a stick shift before in my life. Other than this one tractor, I still haven't driven a stick shift. Why complicate the wheel, right? Um, And so this guy's like, now, have you ever driven a tractor like this before? And I was like, well, yeah. I've ridden a mower before. I mean, how complicated could it actually be? Well, complicated enough that I almost ran it into a pond. That's how complicated it could be. And I was like, actually, um, I, I haven't ever done a thing like this before. And he's like, well, I kind of figured that out from the way you drove it. So that was kind of embarrassing, kind of humiliating. But, but it does bring up a point that when we, when we tend to pretend that we know something that, that we don't actually know or we kind of put up this front of certainty when we're not actually certain, um, there, there's potential for disaster in that, right? Um, and that can be very true when it comes to matters of 
faith. And the way it kind of works out is, is something like this. Um, sometimes in the face of questions for, from people who maybe don't know Christ, or maybe you're even there this morning, you've got questions, sometimes we'll just kind of be, pretend to be certain about things that, um, that we're not actually certain about, but we're just kind of scared to admit that we're not certain. For example, um, maybe the question is like, well, why did God let blank happen? Um, and the truth is, we 99% of the time won't know why God let blank happen, but sometimes we try to you know, talk our way through that. And the reality is, when we do that and we're not just honest about the fact that we don't know, it actually ends up discrediting us to people who have genuine questions. It actually ends up discrediting us to people who, who are skeptical because they can kind of smell it, right? Like, like they, they can kind of smell it and they're like, well, this just doesn't make sense or, or you're just kind of being inauthentic or you're not really being honest because like you're being certain, but the reality is you don't really know. And so when we pretend to know when we don't actually know, that can cause problems. Um, but where that actually can lead to another problem is when we go to the other extreme. And, and this is kind of where, where, where maybe what I would say um, people for, with a kind of a deconstruction mindset have gone. Deconstruction is just, in a nutshell, this process of reevaluating your faith. And, and that can sometimes be healthy and sometimes it can be very unhealthy. And where it's very unhealthy is when we end up in the other extreme where we're like, well, we just can't really know anything. Like, 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 like we can guess on some things and we can maybe hypothesize, but we can't actually know. And, and that's a very popular line of thinking in, in today's world in what we call a postmodern culture where culture would argue, well, there is not, not really anything as absolute truth and there is no absolute standard of right and wrong and, and we can't actually know what is true. And both those extremes are unhealthy. Both those extremes are not good because the truth of the matter is this. Even though we'll never know all that we want to know, we can know exactly what we need to know. In fact, you can write that down. We'll never know all we want to know but we can know all we need to know. And that, that, that's true in matters of life. You know, for instance, like if you need to drive a car, um, I don't need to know how the engine works. To, 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 to drive a car. Now, if you know how the engine works, more power to you. I, I just, I, it's just like, it's interesting to me, but I just don't care to figure it out. And I really don't care to figure it out whenever the time comes where my boys want to drive, which my toddler already is like, Kason wants to drive. I'm like, dude, you're like a decade and a half away from that. So just, you know, slow down. You, you'll be there soon enough. Um, all he will really need to know, he needs to know the brake primarily, needs to know the brake, Needs to know the brake, right? All parents in here, your kids, it's like, know the brake. Don't worry about the gas. Just know the brake. Know the brake so you can stop, right? Know the brake. Know the gas. Know forward, reverse, and, and park. And, and, and that's really about it. That, that's real, those are the essentials that will help you drive a vehicle. Um, so, yeah, like, you may not answer every question he has about driving a vehicle, but it will give him the essentials. And the same thing in a lot of ways is true when it comes to the Christian faith. I can promise you, and for some of you, this will really, really bug you. For some of you watching online or listening to the podcast later on, this will bug you. But you will never know everything that you need to know. You will always have questions. And the reason for that is because God is an infinite God. And because God is an infinite God, like he's literally inexhaustible, you will never, ever actually have all your questions answered. There will always be something that you don't know or else God wouldn't be God. 
If you could figure God out, he would not be God. So you will never be able to know everything about God. In fact, we will be in eternity, if you're a follower of Christ, we'll spend eternity in the presence of God and still barely have even scratched the surface of who God is because he is an infinite God. We can never know everything we want to know, but God has made very, very clear what we need to know. And so really what we need to know when it comes to the Christian faith, in my opinion, I think you can boil it down to one very, very simple question, and it's this right here. Is it real? Is it real? And in my opinion, that, that like, when it comes to our faith, well, like, like, like that, is, that, that really is the most important question. Is this whole thing of Christianity, is it real on a historical level? But is it also real for you on a personal level? Because when we make decisions based on something that is not true, like it, it just ends up kind of painful. You know, for instance, um, a story from, from the challenging love life of middle school, Pastor Dylan. I was in eighth grade. There was this girl. Her name was Mary. I had a crush on her. She just didn't seem interested. And then one night, one fateful night in, I think, November of 2002, when I was an eighth grader, I got a call from a girl. And they said, it, and she said it was Mary. Now, I'll just be honest, my heart melted, it fluttered, all that sort of stuff. We talked on the phone for like 45 minutes, and I was like, all my hopes and dreams are coming true at like 14 years old. This is amazing. And so I wrote her a note the next, like when school got back in, I was like, hey, anytime you want to call, you can call me. And she was flabbergasted because guess what? The girl that called, it wasn't her. It was some girl that knew I would talk to Mary, but it was some other girl that had a crush on me. And I was like, this is devastating. And so I was embarrassed. She was embarrassed. But I made some, uh, like I had written her a note based on something that I thought was true, and it wasn't true, and it was just devastating to my soul as a 14-year-old. Um, and I just thought it was really cruel after that. It's like, how can you do that to a guy? That's just, just mean. Um, and so we don't want to ever make decisions based on something, on things that are not true, because you, you'll just end up in, in a whole lot of trouble. We want to make decisions based on what is true. And so when it comes to Christianity, we need to determine, is it real? Is it real on a historical level? And, and is it real for me personally? If I do believe it happened historically, is my faith real? Is my faith genuine? Or you could even think of it this way. How, how can I know that I'm actually saved? And so let's look at it from a historical level first off. Um, pretty, you will not really find a serious scholar in the world who tries to disagree with the idea that Jesus walked on earth. Like every serious scholar in the world, except maybe a few with a weird axe to grind, will agree that Jesus of Nazareth walked on earth. He was a real person. He was born in history. He lived in history. Most of them will agree, yes, he was crucified under a guy named Pontius Pilate. And yet, very shortly after his death, this movement comes up called Christianity, where people are worshiping Jesus as God. And so it just begs the question, what led from this guy named Jesus, who he would have just probably fallen into the category for most people of, of a traveling rabbi or a traveling sage, what led from this guy that seemed to be a really good teacher, a really nice guy, all of a sudden people are worshiping him as God? Well, like, what leads to that? And we actually have some arguments from guys who walked with Jesus or saw Jesus. First John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, this is written by a guy named John who, who was one of Jesus' disciples on earth. And he writes this. He says, that which was from the beginning, watch this, which we have heard, 
which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, and this is just another way to refer to Jesus. We have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and watch this, has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So what John, one of the first 12 disciples who walked with Jesus, his argument in one of his letters to a church here is that, hey, this isn't something we thought up. This isn't something we invented. This isn't something that was just passed on to us. This is something we experienced. When we saw Jesus, we heard Jesus, we literally touched him with our hands. This this is a real thing. This wasn't just something that we were taught and decided we believed it. This is something that actually happened. Peter, another of the twelve Original disciples makes this statement in his letter um, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter's making the same argument as John. This is not something we thought up. This is not something that was passed on. This wasn't a cute story that we thought, man, this is this sounds great. No, this is something we saw. We were witnesses to the fact that Jesus. Jesus walked among us, that he never sinned, that he died on a cross, and then he came back to life. We saw it happen. And then Paul, a later apostle, who had an encounter with the risen Jesus, makes this argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This will be a little lengthy, but we'll just walk through it here. He says, now brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, another name for Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, which was Jesus' earthly brother, which, by the way, that's just always really interesting, because how many of y'all have siblings? Siblings? Who has siblings? Okay. What would your brother or sister have to do to convince you they were God? Could they do anything to convince you they were God? Probably not, because you knew where all the skeletons were. And yet you have the earthly brother of Jesus, James, who becomes a worshiper of Jesus. And how might that happen? Well, if your brother never does anything wrong and then dies and then shows up after he's dead, like to you in person, then it's probably like, that makes a lot more sense now. You know, and also it'd just be frustrating if you're James, because you're, you know, Mary's always saying, probably, why can't you just be more like Jesus? And it's like, well, because. But then he says this. Then then Paul makes this argument. He says, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So so what Paul is even saying, and and, and actually um, Acts, Luke's written account of the early history of the church bears this out. Paul did not become a follower of Jesus because he just all of a sudden decided that the teachings of Jesus were better than the teachings of Orthodox Judaism at the time. Paul became a follower of Jesus because Jesus literally showed up, knocked him on his rear end and said, you need to cut it out. And he's like, who are you? And he's like, I'm Jesus. And Paul's like, oh, okay, that makes sense now. So Paul's argument is, this isn't something that was invented. This is something I experienced. And then he goes on to say this. And this is so, so important, guys. He says, starting in verse 
14. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Paul's argument here is that the big thing that, that moves Jesus from just a good teacher to, to Lord and Savior is, no, he came back to life. He came back to life. Like That's the foundation of the faith. And that's what the disciples are arguing. It's what Peter argues. It's what John argues. It's like, hey, this is not just something we thought was a great idea. This is something we lived. This is something we experienced. We literally encountered the risen Jesus in the flesh. We touched him. It wasn't a hallucination. It wasn't a vision. It wasn't something we just dreamed up. It was something that literally happened. And Paul even makes the argument here that, man, if Jesus stayed dead, then this whole thing is pointless. And that's actually something that certain branches of so-called Christianity really miss because there, there's a very big movement that, 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 that a lot of times it flows from deconstruction called progressive Christianity and not progressive so much in a political sense as in a theological sense. But their argument is, well, well Jesus didn't actually come back to life. Like Paul's talking about a spiritual resurrection here. And, and the resurrection isn't actually essential to be a Christian because the apostles, the disciples, Christianity was based on the teachings of Jesus and the example of Jesus. But Paul completely rebuts that. Paul says, no, if Jesus Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then this is a waste of time. This is a waste of time. Then he, then he doubles down that verse 15. He says, more than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. In other words, we're lying if Jesus didn't come back to life. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. And if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith, watch this, is futile. You are still in your sins. In other words, if all Jesus did was die on the cross, but he didn't come back to life, then sin actually defeated him. If Jesus died on the cross but did not come back to life, then we would have no assurance that, no, he actually did defeat sin. He actually did pay for sin. He did defeat death because the result of sin is death. And if sin could kill Jesus by Jesus taking on the weight of sin and dying but not come back to life, it would mean that sin is greater than Jesus and that any belief in Jesus is completely pointless. And so if you're here in the room or if you're watching online and you're like, yeah, I kind of like the teachings of Jesus, I like the morality of Jesus, um, and I think that's enough. Listen, if Jesus didn't come back to life, then, then, then go eat, drink, and be merry and do whatever the heck you want to do if he didn't come back to life. Because if he didn't come back to life, this whole thing is pointless. And then he goes on to say this in verse 18. He says, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, if Jesus didn't come back to life, then, then man, we're just a bunch of sorry people. Like there is no point in serving people. There is no point in doing good things. There is certainly no point in trying to live according to, to the ethics that Jesus taught because if he's not risen from the dead, then he's not Lord, then what's the point? But then he goes on to say this. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, in other words, death came to the world through Adam and Eve's sin, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Paul's argument here is that the foundation of Christianity is not the teachings of Jesus, it's not ideas Jesus taught, it's not the example of Jesus, it's not even faith in Jesus. The foundation of Christianity was an event that happened, and that event was was the resurrection. The idea is this. Christianity wasn't birthed by faith in Jesus, nor the teachings of Jesus. It was built on facts about Jesus. And that's one thing we have to remember. For, for us living 2,000 years ago, it's very much faith. 
But for the guys who lived it, for the guys that experienced it, they didn't give their lives because Jesus taught some really nice things. And they didn't give their lives to the death because Jesus was a great example. They gave their lives because they saw Jesus die and they saw him come back to life. They saw him alive, literally alive. That's why Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians, was ultimately beheaded because he wouldn't back off that claim. That's why Peter, who said we were eyewitnesses, that's why he was crucified upside down, because he would not back off that claim. That's why John, who was boiled in oil and then exiled to an island called Patmos, was exiled because he would not back off that claim that Jesus was alive. And you'll have some modern scholars try, try, to, try to twist this and weasel out of it and say, well, well, man, they were just trying to invent a new religion. And I'll just be honest, that is logically, it just makes no sense. Because there was literally no advantage for these guys that were Jewish men to invent basically a brand new religion out of Judaism. No advantage for them at all. Like, because, and a lot of times, I'll just be honest, that argument that they were just trying to invent a new religion is often done from a viewpoint of 2,000 years later and looking through the filter of the Crusades and how Christianity was abused in that time or looking through how Christianity is sometimes abused by really poor pastors and poor leaders now or looking through the lens of Constantine. But when these guys started it, there, there was no political advantage to being a Christian. There was no social advantage to being a Christian. It, it was pretty much, if you were a Christian, you were going to get tortured and killed, probably. No advantage to this at all. So, so, so why in the world would these guys that were mostly just kind of ragtag fishermen from a, a region called Galilee, why would they start going around boldly saying, hey, Jesus is Lord, not because he taught some nice things, not because he set a really good example, but because they saw him die, they saw him come back to life. It wasn't faith for them, it was facts. In fact, even, even in the book of Acts, they say, man, we can't help but talk about the things that we have seen and heard. They were eyewitnesses. Christianity was not birthed by faith in Jesus nor the teachings of Jesus. It was built on facts about Jesus. And the resurrection is literally the only thing that actually makes sense for these guys to have become so bold in their faith. It's the only thing that makes sense. The idea that they were following a nice example makes zero sense, especially after they start getting killed. You know why? Because people may die for something that's not true, but no one will give their life for something that they know is a lie. Right? Like, like nobody would do that. It, it, just, it just makes absolutely zero sense. And these are guys are the guys that are saying, man, we saw Jesus come back to life. And even super liberal scholars like Bart Ehrman out of University of North Carolina see lots of nasty stuff comes out of Chapel Hill. If you're a Carolina fan, you know, you just got bad theology up there. I'm just saying. Um, you, got a, you got a great basketball team, and I truly am jealous. I, I really am jealous. I am. Um, but he'll even argue that, okay, they obviously thought they saw something. But what makes more sense? Twelve guys having a mass hallucination of the exact same thing? Like, 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 like that doesn't happen. It literally doesn't happen. Or does it make more sense that they experienced Jesus Christ coming back to life. And by the way, let me say this. If you kind of have a, a kind of a quasi-belief in God, kind of a divine being, an all-powerful being, whatever, like, why would the resurrection be so hard to accept? Because if to, to be God is to be all-powerful, which means coming back to life isn't really that big a deal for one who's all-powerful and who is life itself. And so the resurrection, literally the only thing that made sense. Christianity was not birthed by faith in Jesus or the teachings of Jesus. It was built on facts 
about Jesus. Historically, the conclusion I've come to and the conclusion that so many others like Lee Strobel have come to when they've investigated this, with no bias, no, pre, no preconceived ideas, just wiping the deck clean and really digging into it, their understanding has been the most logical answer is the resurrection. That's it. And so historically, just where, where, where I've landed, where so many others have landed, is, no, this is, this is a real thing. This is a real thing. And here's the reality. No other religion in the world is built off of an event in history. Islam is built off of, of a vision that a guy named Muhammad supposedly had. had. Buddha is based off, of, based off teaching. Hinduism, teachings, that sort of thing. No other religion is based off an event that happened. Christianity is based off an event in history. That's what makes it historically true and reliable. Historically, it's real. Now, here's the question we have to wrestle with on the other side of that. If it's real, how do I respond to that? Because if Jesus Christ literally lived on earth, died on a cross for our sins to pay the price that we owed God, and then came back to life proving that everything he said was true, like that demands a response, right? Like you can't just hear that and be like, oh yeah, that's nice. Because the things he said, like, like, like things like, well, there's no other way to the Father except me, like, like you can't just ignore that. You have to deal with that. And so the question we have to ask on the other side of that is not just is Christianity historically real, but man, is, is my faith real? Is my faith personally real? And I'll just be honest, so often in Christian circles, that can be a question so many people struggle with. Because maybe your story is you prayed a prayer at a summer camp, or maybe you prayed a prayer at revival a long time ago, or maybe as a kid in church you went to the front and, and said some things to the pastor, and all of a sudden you were being baptized and that sort of thing, and you just kind of wonder, man, how do I actually know that I'm saved? Or maybe you went through a season of life where it felt like you were following Jesus really closely, and then you went through a season where, man, you just kind of ran as, as hard from God as you could in the opposite direction, and, and, and you start struggling, or you're wondering, like, well, oh, man, am I actually even saved? Like, how do I know that I'm saved? And here's the good news for us this morning, guys. God wants us to know the answer to that question. God does not want to leave you guessing, and he does not want to leave you wishing, and he does not want to leave you just kind of hoping or trying to prove it to yourself. Because John writes this, 1 John 5, 13. This is where we'll camp for the rest of the morning, just toward the end of 1 John 5. John writes this. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Not so you can guess, not so you can wish, not so you can maybe I kind of think I'm this way. No, but, but so that you can know. In fact, Nate Archibald, who wrote word pictures in the New Testament, he says this word, no, the idea behind this is settled intuitive knowledge. It's not superficial. So John is saying, I want you to know deep down in your soul, no more questions, no more doubts. I want you to be able to know that you have eternal life. And so my prayer for every single one of us in the room this morning or watching or listening online is very simply this, that you walk away from, from the next few minutes and you know where you stand before God. If you're here in the room or watching online, man, that you would walk away from the next few minutes and you would know if you feel like you're a Christian but maybe you're struggling, you would know whether or not you are. 
For those of you who are genuinely Christians, my prayer is that you would walk away for the next few minutes knowing, okay, I have settled once and for all. I'm a follower of Christ. And for those of you who maybe you kind of sort of think so, but maybe you aren't, you would come away realizing, I'm not a follower of Christ and I need to give my life to Jesus today. And we're going to work through some questions to kind of navigate this, but the big idea I wanted to lead into first off is this. My faith doesn't rest on subjective feelings, but on settled facts. It doesn't rest on subjective feelings, because here's what I can tell you as somebody who's following, been following Jesus for almost 14 years. There will be days and moments where you do not feel saved. Usually for me, that happens when I'm dealing with my toddler. He just frustrates me sometimes, and sometimes I'm like, ah, I blew it, and I feel like a horrible person. You'll have moments where you feel saved. You'll have moments where, where you don't feel saved. But the reality is we can't base our, our attitude or our actions, we can't base our faith on subjective feelings that come and go. We want to base it on settled facts. And so I want to walk us through four questions here. And there, there's not a single question here um, that, that I would say is determinative. But, but all these questions together really do come together to form a really clear picture. And they produce clarity. And that's what we prayed for at the start of this message, that God would shine the light of his word in our hearts and bring clarity. I can just tell you, for, for maybe those of you who are in the room or watching online and you're not actually a follower of Jesus yet, man, it can be scary to admit, I'm not actually a Christian. But it's a necessary thing to happen if you want to experience eternal life because up until the time I was 21 years old, I was convinced I was a Christian then was confronted by the Word of God listening to a Christmas message online that I actually wasn't. And God spoke to my heart and said, you don't know me. And that day I gave my life to Christ and everything has been different since. So there may be some things that we realize here in the next few moments that are just very uncomfortable for us to understand. Um, but God doesn't do that because he's out to get us. God does it because he wants us to step into his family. So here's the first question. You can write this down. Do I approach God like I know God? Do I approach God like I know him? Um, so, so next weekend we're doing parent commissioning and baby dedication. And so um, my parents will be here. And so if you're a first-time guest and you saw me go out to a uh, couple that, that looks like they're maybe in their 60s or, or that sort of thing, or maybe in their 50s, my parents look great for their age, um, and you saw me give the guy a big hug and then give the, the lady a hug and kiss her on the forehead, you would probably not conclude they treat first-time guests really weird here. Right? And if you know me at all, like, I'm not really wired like that. Like, we've got to get pretty close, like, 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 for me to give you a hug. Like, I'm not just, I'm not naturally a really huggy person or whatever. Um, but you would probably more accurately conclude, well, well, well he must really know them really, really well, or they, they, they're, they're probably related. Why? Because I would be interacting with them like I knew them. Whereas if you're a first-time guest, I'm going to say hello to you. I'm going to introduce to you. I'm going to try to you know, have some small talk, find out a little bit about you just because I'm genuinely interested in you and that sort of thing. But I'm probably not going to give you a hug. But you're going to be able to tell, okay, that there's some interaction there that kind of indicates relationship, right? Well, let me ask you this. When it comes to how you approach God, do you approach God like you know him? Do you approach God like there's actually relationship there? Because watch what John says here next. Verse 14, he says, This is the confidence 
we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we, we, have, what we ask of him. The, the idea there is not, oh, I can ask God for anything like a Ferrari or a, you know, all-inclusive vacation, he'll give it to me. That's not the point. The point there is, man, there's relationship there. How do we get that? Because there's confidence in approaching God. You've been around God so much that you approach him with confidence, but also you've been around God so much that you start to intuitively ask for the things that you know he wants you to ask for. That's why that verse says that God will answer those prayers because the point there is if we ask according to his will, he hears us and he answers us. The key point there being according to his will, but the more you're around God, guess what? The more you start to understand what to ask for. But that comes from relationship. That comes from knowing him. And so the question is simply this. When you approach God in prayer, man, how do you approach him? Do you approach him like you know him? Or do you approach him like, like, like there's kind of some distance there? In fact, I can even think back to before I became a Christian. Man, my, my prayers were very transactional, and it was very much like there was, there was some separation. And here's the thing, and again, no, no one of these questions is determinative, but, but they start to create a picture. You can often tell somebody's posture towards God by the way they address God when they pray. What do I mean by that? Well, when Jesus modeled prayer for us in Matthew chapter 6, he said, this is how you should pray. Our Father. And let's just be honest, guys. For some of us, we have a very hard time calling God Father. Sometimes that's because we project the imperfections of our earthly dad onto our heavenly Father, and, and then that's not right. God should not pay for the mistakes of your earthly parents. But sometimes that's because we view God very much in an authority sort of sense or in kind of a very much a distant sort of sense as opposed to, no, no, the term is Father. In Aramaic, the term is Abba, which, which is a term of intimacy, of closeness, of relationship. So I would just say, man, when you guys pray, how do you approach God? Do you approach him as, as God, which is almost kind of has this feel of, of, of the man upstairs. It's kind of your distance, you're in charge, you're all powerful, but, but we're not close. Do you approach him as Lord, which indicates, man, he, you're, a, you're an authority, you are Lord, but we're not really close. Or have you come to the point where you approach him as Father? And that, honestly, that's one of the biggest changes that the Lord has done in my life over the last 14 years as I've followed him. It has brought me to the point of calling him Father. And I didn't, I didn't shy away from that term because of any dad issues on my part. My dad was and is fantastic. Um, it was because I viewed God very much as a, you know, from a standpoint of authority, but not so much from a standpoint of intimacy. But as I've followed Jesus and come closer, no, I delight in calling my Heavenly Father, Father. Do you approach God like you know him? That's the question. The second question is this. Am I being changed by Jesus? Am I being changed by Jesus? One of the things we believe at LifeSpring is that we're all a work in progress. We are not perfect people who have arrived. We are imperfect people who love Jesus and are being changed by Jesus. We're a work in progress, but the point there is, but there is progress. That there is change that happens. There is growth that is happening. And growth can be messy, right? Like, like I've got, you know, two kids. I've got an eight-month-old. He's eight months old today. And then a uh, two-and-a-half-year-old. And, and there's maturity there. There's growth there. But, but it's messy, right? And the truth is, as we start to grow as followers of Jesus, when you become a Christian, you, you don't step into salvation all of a sudden and you're perfect. 
It's a very messy process. You stumble over some things. You get some things wrong. There's a lot of junk that you have to deal with and continue to have to deal with and that sort of thing. And I can honestly tell you 14 years in, like the issues I dealt with at the start of my journey with Jesus were so much more shallow than the issues I deal with now because when I first started following Jesus, it was very much surface level behavior. Now it's very much attitudes and the posture of my heart. But, but there's progress. And, and I'm not saying you get it right all the time, but you should be able to look back at, at the point to where you gave your life to Christ and say, okay, I was here, and I'm not perfect, but, 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 but my, my trajectory is moving that way. And it, would have, and it may have had a lot of ups and downs in between, but, but I'm a distinctly different person from when I started following Jesus to where I am now. Here's what John writes about this, verse 18, the first part of it. He says, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. Now, the idea there is not they stop sinning altogether. It doesn't mean that you never get anything wrong. I get lots of stuff wrong, guys. What it means is you don't continue to deal with the same sin after you've been confronted with it. You start to change. There's progress. And one of the ways I heard um, this described was from my pastor, Scott Betts. He said there's a difference between struggling with your sin and snuggling with your sin. There's a huge difference huge difference. In fact, that's one of the biggest evidences of whether or not you're a follower of Jesus. Do you struggle against sin? Do you fight against sin? Is there this thing in your life that you're taking steps to move past that you're open to correction on, you're open to rebuke on, you're open to, to, to having a different way of thinking about it? Or are you just like, well, on it, this is the way I'm going to do it, and if you don't like it, back off. When you're confronted with sin, is there an openness to, okay, God, you're right, I'm wrong? Is there a posture of repentance? Is there a posture of confession of sin? Is there a posture of change? Or is it like, no, I'm doing this, it feels right for me, it makes me happy? Because reality is this if you become, if you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And the Holy Spirit brings conviction when there's sin. In fact, I've often heard it said that one of the primary differences between a follower of Jesus and somebody who's not a follower of Jesus is this. It's not that a follower of Jesus can't sin. It's that if a follower of Jesus is walking in sin, they'll be utterly miserable because the Holy Spirit will eat them alive saying, you know you shouldn't do this. You know you shouldn't do this. You know you shouldn't do this. Some of y'all are experiencing right, that right now because there's something that you know is wrong that, that you're like, I don't really want to deal with it. But the Holy Spirit's like, you need to deal with this. You need to deal with this. Maybe it's unforgiveness. Maybe it's an issue of sexual sin. I don't know what it is, but you need to deal with it. Others of you are walking in that right now, maybe here in the room, maybe watching online, and you're just like, that's not a problem for me. I don't want to hear about it. And the reason this makes you uncomfortable is because you don't feel conviction over that sin, and that just simply means you're not yet a follower of Christ. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, guess what? There will be change evident in your life. And again, I'm not saying you get it perfect, but you should be able to go back to when you became a follower of Christ and then look to where you are now and say, man, I'm not perfect. I haven't always gotten it right, but man, God has changed me. And that's one of the biggest encouragements for me, guys, is I can go back to where I was in 2008 to where I am now and say, man, God has changed me massively massively. I had anger issues. I had addiction issues. I would swear like a sailor. It, it was bad. I was proud. I was arrogant. I was very self-centered. Um, and man, God has changed me. And God has even continued to change me on this side of my walk with Christ. In fact, some of the deepest changes God has done in me have, have just been in like the last year, year and a half or so. Because the mark of somebody following Jesus, man, you change. Why? 
Because God's desire for you is not just to give you a ticket to eternity. It's to conform you to the image of Christ. It's to make you more and more like Him. So are you being changed by Jesus? What's the change that's happened? The third question is this. Am I resting in my position as God's child? Am I resting in my position as God's child? Because here's the thing, guys. I think, I think about my two boys. They may frustrate me, but guess what? They never stop being my kids. And I'm not going to kick my toddler out just because he has a little bit of a rebellious moment. And I'm not going to kick my eight-month-old out because he just, he's decided that now he likes to wake up two times a night and not cry, but just talk. And he's got his daddy's voice. My voice is naturally loud. We've got the volume on the baby monitor down on one, and it sounds like he's screaming. And he's just going, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, just go to sleep, please. But they never stop being my kids. And see, here's reality, guys. When you become a follower of Christ, yeah, you'll fail. Yeah, you'll fall. But guess what? You never stop being a child of God. In fact, John writes this, the second part of verse 18. He says, the one who was born of God keeps them safe. Jesus keeps those that are saved safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God, and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Here's the question. If you're struggling with whether or not you've been saved, are you resting in your position as a child of God? Because Paul writes elsewhere describing salvation as our lives being hidden in Christ, which means when we stand before God, God doesn't see our sin. He sees His Son, and He has the same posture towards us as He does towards Jesus. And He described that posture when Jesus was baptized, Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, where He said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. If you are in Christ, you are a child of God, and God's posture towards you is not you're a screw-up, it's not you're a failure, it's not that you keep coming up short, it is, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter, this is my child, I love them unconditionally, it's not based on their performance, it's based on their position in Christ, and I approve of them, I'm pleased with them. Are you resting in that? And I'll just say something, guys, as somebody who, who has very much a performance sort of mindset, this one has been challenging for me. This one's been very challenging for me. To rest in my position of God's child because so often we think, well, I've got to do all this different stuff to make God happy. And God's like, well, Jesus already did everything. And that doesn't mean we can go do whatever we want. Why? Because if you're following Jesus, you'll be changed. But what it does mean is, hey, you can stop striving. You can stop feeling, having this need to prove yourself to yourself or to other people or even to God. Because if you're in Christ, you're his child, and you can rest in that. And I would actually argue that's the type of posture that births a calling in our lives. That's the type of posture that produces real change in our lives because I'm not now trying to just do a whole bunch of stuff to make God happy. I'm resting in my posture as God's child, and now I'm free to be who God wants me to be, not who I think I have to be or who other people think I have to be. So do you rest in your posture as a child of God? Or do you think that you need to kind of prove it? Because Jesus already did all the proving on your behalf. And you can rest in that. And the last question is this. Do 
I consistently and increasingly choose Jesus over everything else? Do I consistently and increasingly choose Jesus over everything else? And this is not a thing that you'll get perfect, guys. Like, there's still a couple things that the Lord is working on, uh, or lots of things. But the two big things that he's really pushing down on right now in my life, believe it or not, one is sweets. Do I love Jesus more than sweets? And the other is, do I love Jesus more than the snooze button? You say, those sound really like really tiny things. Guys, they're kind of, they're kind of big deals for me right now. Do, do I love Jesus enough that when it's 5 o'clock and the alarm goes off, and I'm like, Jesus, I love you more than 10 minutes of extra sleep? And that, that's why the Lord has me off of, off of desserts right now because he, the, the thing he's pointing out in me is, you know, do you love me enough to say no to this? This is why God will have us fast things from time to time. Fasting is not spiritual dieting. Fasting is Jesus saying, hey, I want to see if you love me more than this. Do you love me more? Do you choose me over these other things? That's John's point here. He closes out his letter with this, verse 21 of John chapter 5. He says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. What is he saying here? If you want maybe a single thing that defines a follower of Jesus, it's that they consistently in an increasing manner, more and more and more, they choose Jesus over everything else. That's one of the ideas behind this thing we'll say. Well, we say that the mission moves us beyond us. What we're really saying is, man, at the end of the day, the calling of Jesus in our lives, it moves us to choose Jesus over everything else. We choose Jesus instead of our comfort zone to go share the gospel with people or invite them to church. We choose Jesus over the size of our bank account when we give. We choose Jesus over our individualism by gathering with people in our groups. We choose Jesus over our pride when we initiate reconciliation with somebody, even though we think we're perfectly in the right. We choose Jesus over our ego when we forgive somebody, even when they've hurt us. We choose Jesus over everything else. One of the reasons we gather on Sunday morning, guys, is because our gathering is a witness to the world that that, hey, we choose Jesus over sleeping in. We choose Jesus over football. We choose Jesus over hunting. We choose Jesus over a long weekend. We choose Jesus over everything else. We read the Bible, not to read the Bible, because, but because it's the same. I choose Jesus over everything else. Are you choosing Jesus over everything else in a consistent and increasing manner? Or are you choosing your preferred lifestyle? Are you choosing your actions? Are you choosing what you want, what you desire? Are you choosing your comfort? Are you choosing your pride? And see, I'm not saying this is not a struggle, guys, but again, there's a difference between struggling with sin and snuggling with sin. Are you choosing Jesus over everything else? Because a follower of Jesus, one of the marks in their lives is an increasing and consistent pattern of, man, Jesus is more important. His mission is more important. His agenda is more important. His glory is more important. That's the question. Do you choose Jesus over everything else? And this starts with salvation. Salvation is the starting point, but we have to make sure we understand. That's the starting point for this. The starting point of a relationship with Christ is, okay, I'm done doing things my way. Jesus, you're in charge. I'm choosing you over control of my own life. At the end of the day, when you become a follower of Christ, that's really what you're signing away. You are signing away your right to be in charge. In fact, that, that's the thing for some of you guys here in the room or watching online. You've never signed away your right to be in charge. That's where I was at 21 years old. Dylan wanted to be in charge of his life. 
It starts with signing away your right to be in charge. And then every step afterwards is Jesus saying, okay, I want you to choose me over this. I want you to choose me over this. I want you to choose me over this. And that will continue until the Lord takes you home to be with him in eternity. Are you choosing him? And so we're going to sing a song here in just a moment. It's called, Oh, Come to the Altar. And here's what I want you guys to be thinking about as we sing. What is it that I need to come to Jesus for? If you're a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, then man, maybe it's something in your life where God is calling you, hey, I want you to choose me over this. You need to turn from your sin and run to the Lord. And if you're here and maybe you're like, man, I'm, I don't think if I am a believer. And I would just say, if you can walk through those four questions and come away with any sense of uncertainty, I would say there's a good chance you've never stepped across the line of faith. But I would just say, man, if there's any uncertainty in you, don't leave today uncertain. Run to the Lord.